Hebrews 13, the very end of the book of Hebrews. We just uh, spent a week together as a family on vacation every year, uh, except for a few exceptions. For the last 19 years, um, we've taken a trip to the beach uh, every summer as a family. Uh, for many years, we did this with Jennifer's parents. Sometimes her brother and family would join us, but for the last seven years, it's just been us, and we really, we really look forward to vacation together as a family of, of eight. Uh, we plan, prepare, we really focus on engaging with each other. We turn off as many distractions as possible, don't answer the phone or respond to emails as much as possible. Uh, even trying to create a, if you have an Apple phone, you know about focus time, and there's a trying to create a vacation focus that I could turn on. And so if someone calls me or sends me a message or email that during the week of vacation, hey, I'm on vacation with my family. Uh, I'll get back to you when I get home. Pray for us to have a good time together, trying to figure out how to make technology even help. Um, together, loving, serving, just deepening our relationship with each other, fully focused on being a family for that entire, end of, uh, that entire week, truly resting, truly slowing down, and towards the end of the week, we'll start saying to each other, gosh, we just never want to leave. Can we just live here? And of course, we know that vacation is not real life. Like, uh, it's just uh, something we get to enjoy and we go back to our normal routine of life. There will be a day when we will experience God's eternal state and there will be rest and there will be joy and there will be beauty and there will be all of us enjoying all of the new creation forever and ever and ever. And we never have to come to the end of that. We never have to say goodbye to that. But we're not... To that day. So vacation is just a, a sliver, like an hors d'oeuvre of the eternal state of what it's like to be with people we love and be in God's creation, enjoying all of that forever. Vacation for us is the epitome of the expression long days and fast years. It feels timeless in some ways to have that time together, but we know it comes and goes so fast. But we pack a lot of love and a lot of life into that short week. And especially with our older two getting so old, 20 and 17, and beginning to see them go off into adulthood and maybe even marriage, uh, Lord willing, one day and beyond, living in different places. We see this phase beginning to transition for us as a, as a, as a family. We're holding on to it even tighter and having great conversations with them this week about just in appreciating these moments even more. A lot of love, a lot of life into a very short week. I was reminded of that when I was considering this passage, this short passage at the end of the book of Hebrews. In these two short verses, verses 20 and 21, you have a whole lot of theology and truth expressed in a prayer for the people he is addressing that he hopes will continue to spur them on to follow Jesus. And the theme of the book is, Jesus is better. Hebrews, written to a group of believers in and around Italy in the 60s A.D. who had suffered some persecution for, for being followers of Jesus, and they were now facing more, and they were tempted to leave the path of following Jesus and go back to what they believed was the safe confines of Judaism, which the Roman Empire at the time was more okay with than Christianity. But the writer of Hebrews, whose identity we don't know, could be Paul, maybe Luke, maybe Apollos, maybe somebody else. For sure, it's the Holy Spirit. This writer says over and over throughout the book, Jesus is better. 
Don't go away from Jesus. Don't seek another path. There's no one like Jesus. And to turn away from Jesus means you lose Jesus. And if you lose Jesus, you lose everything. Jesus is better than anyone or anything else that we can put our hope, joy, our affection into. Even a vacation at the beach. If you go in, I want to write a theology of vacations one day. If you go into a vacation expecting that vacation to be what solves your problems, what fixes you, you will be sorely disappointed at the end of that vacation. Because even something as wonderful as a vacation at the beach for a week isn't what we should ultimately treasure and value and love. It's Jesus. Jesus is actually better than vacations. And when you treasure Jesus most, then you can truly enjoy a vacation. You can truly enjoy your spouse, enjoy your children, enjoy your job to the ultimate that Jesus intends because you have your priorities in the right place. Jesus is better than all of that. Jesus is better than uh, anyone or anything else we can lean on or trust in for salvation. Jesus sets us free from legalistic rule following as a means to become right in God's eyes. Jesus sets us free from weird spiritual beliefs like elevating angels over Jesus, which he addresses at the beginning of the book, or elevating other spiritual guides or teachers above Jesus. Jesus is God, and in Jesus we see God, His revelation, clearer than any other way God has chosen to make Himself known. And we know Jesus through the Scriptures. And so the ultimate way to know God isn't through angels or voices in your head or spiritual guides from other religions or the wind blowing through the trees. The ultimate way to know God is through Jesus, the living Word of God as revealed in the Bible, the written Word of God. We, therefore, as the church, are a people of the book this book. And the book of Hebrews has been emphatic for 13 chapters with this singular message. Do not walk away from Jesus no matter what it costs you. Even persecution, even imprisonment, even the loss of property, and even death. You can't hold on to God and walk away from Jesus. They are one and the same. And it climaxes with these two verses, this prayer, which is like a final crescendo to the letter. Six firework cannons to end a fireworks show six aspects of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done so that our hearts are inflamed once again by how amazing he is. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may he equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you spoke it to your people 2,000 years ago. Thank you that it was recorded, preserved, translated, and made available to us today so that we hold in our hands the very Word of God. You are still speaking because we have your Word. And so speak to us today through your Word. We need you as your people. We are in desperate need of Jesus and His gospel to continue to work in us. We are broken, we are frail, we are struggling, we are weak, we are, we are struggling with fears, our anxieties, our hopelessness, aloneness, sin, sins of commission. Sins of, there's so many things that we're struggling with, Jesus. We need you to work in us today. And maybe even for some, today might be the day of their salvation. 
because they will see their sinfulness, but they will see Jesus as sufficient and willing and lovingly able to save them. Do all of this for the glory of one alone, Jesus. We pray in his strong, strong name. Amen. First thing we see is that he is a God, that God is a God of peace. Very common expression in all of Paul's letters. We receive peace from God so that we are no longer at war with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A few verses later, we find out that before Christ intervened, we were in fact God's enemies. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? This is our natural state. This is the natural state of those who are born with a sin nature, which is human, human beings. Ephesians 2 tells us our natural state isn't just being dead in sins, but we are actually agents of evil. Ephesians 2, 1-3, And you, Paul is speaking to these believers, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the rule of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too, Paul says, I'm with that group, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. In our natural state, we are God's enemies, and we are at war with God, and it's always on the losing side. There's no true battle for victory because God wins. He's not, he's not struggling to win. He wins because He's God. And there's no hope for those born in that natural state of sin apart from the God of peace bringing us near through His Son, Jesus. Ephesians 2, 17 through 18. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And in that verse, he's making distinctions between the Gentiles and the Jews. So God came through Jesus and proclaimed peace to those who were far away, that's the Gentiles, and those who were near, the Jews. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so God is a God of peace in the sense if there is going to be a peace with a holy, righteous God, it's because He's made a way and made known His terms, and there is a way for us to have peace with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who live their lives in turmoil and trouble who have this lack of rest and lack of peace, and sometimes it's simply because they are still at war with God over their soul. That's all it is. They want to be in charge. They want to be the captain of their ship. And they refuse to simply repent and trust in Jesus and be at peace with God as their king and savior. It's my life. It's my way. I want it my way. And that mentality automatically sets you on a course for rough waters. And one of the great ways we as God's people can demonstrate the reality of Jesus and his gospel to others is that we live with Jesus as our king and God as a God of peace in our hearts filled with His peace. We're not, we're not fighting the King. Whatever He says to do, we do it. Wherever He says go, we go. Whatever He calls us to walk through, we walk through it. We are willful, loving, submissive servants of King Jesus. Why? Because of all He's done for us to serve us and give His life as a ransom for us. And that's how we live in appreciation and gratitude and worship to Him. 
Because it's not just that we have peace with God through Jesus that means we're no longer at war. It's also His peace through Jesus lives inside of us. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. This is a verse every single one of us should memorize and apply and believe and embrace every single day. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In the almost 20 years I've been a pastor, that probably is one of the top three verses I've quoted to people when doing biblical counseling, pastoral counseling. You don't have to worry about this. You can actually live free from worry by, instead of worrying, which accomplishes nothing, praying. Pray. And as you're praying and presenting your petitions and requests to God, He promises us we receive from Him His peace which comes inside of us, this peace that surpasses our understanding it. We can't even explain this peace. But it surpasses understanding. It comes and it guards our heart and mind. The language there Paul gives us is that of a soldier on a duty, on a post, marching around our hearts, marching around our minds, fighting against the anxieties and the worries, and filling our hearts and minds with his peace. How many people do we know who would love to exchange some of their worry and anxiety for the peace of Jesus that guards their hearts and minds. Who would choose? No, I'd rather take the worry and anxiety. Just you keep the peace of Jesus guarding my heart and mind. Like, who would choose that? Nobody would. And Jesus says, it's available to you, brother and sister. It's available to you, Christian. If instead of worrying, you would come to me and pray and pursue me and seek me and allow me to give you rest and allow me to give you peace. I was reading an article recently about the increase of teen sadness and mental health concerns. In the 12 years since 2009, teens who feel a persistent feeling of sadness and hopelessness has gone from 26% to 44%. How many of the students that are friends with our kids, or maybe how many of our kids or grandkids, need the peace of God that comes through Jesus? His peace is a peace we have forever and a peace we can live with in tangible ways as we run to Him. Give Him our worries and anxieties and get from Him His peace. Secondly, this passage tells us uh, this God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus. So this God of peace is the resurrector of Jesus. He says, who brought Him up from the dead. This is not only what we celebrate Easter Sunday, but it's actually what we celebrate every single Lord's Day Sunday that we gather together. It was a habit of God's people for hundreds and hundreds of years to set aside the Sabbath, Saturday, as the day of rest and worship. In a very short period of time, that day moved from Saturday to Sunday. Once Jesus rose on the third day, his followers quickly realized that not only had he fulfilled the Old Testament religious rituals that made God's people distinct as a nation, but the Lord's Day takes on a new significance. It's the day Jesus appeared alive to his followers that though he was actually crucified and killed on Friday, and though none of his followers, not a single one, understood or believed him on the three occasions he predicted he would die and rise on the third day, in other words, no one was at the tomb waiting for him to walk out. No one understood it. No one believed it. Though that was his closest followers, and though Satan himself might have believed that the death of Jesus on Friday was his greatest, triumph, his greatest triumph, what was actually going on was our king's ultimate victory. 
When Jesus got off of the stone bed of the tomb and neatly folded his grave clothes, a minor detail that John gives us, he walks out of the grave. It was the final proclamation to all creation, all of Satan, all of his demon horde. Death has been put to death. Sin has been put to death. Satan and his power has been put to death. The greatest weapon of the enemy is not rendered ineffective. Death still stings, we know from 1 Corinthians 15. But that sting is not fatal forever. Death has been so transformed for us as believers in the New Testament. Paul calls death for Christians sleep, a nap. That's how transformed death has been, for, has been made for us through Jesus. Death holds zero power for, uh, over us. To grieve for Christians is to be sad that the person we love is going away for a season but never disappearing from our life forever. It's a temporary parting of ways. One day there will be a reunion of all those who have died in Christ and we will be together as God's people in God's presence and we will never say goodbye again. Ever. All because of the victory accomplished on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished, and then he declared to all the creation at the empty tomb. We grieve, we should grieve, because we love the people God's put in our life, but we always grieve with hope. We always grieve with hope. That is the power of the resurrection. We never, ever, ever get away from the significance and the beauty of the resurrection. Just the very last phrase of the book of Hebrews, grace be with you all. God's grace, His unmerited favor, giving us what we don't deserve, most fully seen in the giving us of salvation and life in Himself to wretched sinners. All we've earned and all we deserve is judgment condemnation, but He has given us life through His Son. This is grace. This is Jesus. Grace be with you all. Jesus be with you all. Jesus' life, Jesus' salvation be with you all. That is not possible if Jesus is just a box of bones in Jerusalem. It's only possible because He came out of the tomb and He is alive and He is alive inside of His people today. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Why? Because He's alive. If He's dead, they're nothing. He is alive and all of His promises are true. And we get to experience them and share them. Thirdly, He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Verse 20. The great shepherd of the sheep. The only time Jesus is referred to in this way in the book of Hebrews. This could... Be a, was, this would be a very well-known metaphor to the Jewish people while Israel was in exile, taken from their land because of their sins and rebellion. A prophet lived among the people in exile, and he gave them messages from the Lord about why he had removed him from the land and why he had allowed, God had allowed them to be taken from their land and why they were experiencing the discipline of God. And unlike so many so-called prophets today, Ezekiel actually spoke the word of the Lord and his truth. And he says in Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 5, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat, you wear the wool, you butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. 
They were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. The, the prophet there, Ezekiel, is saying, your leaders, your shepherds, they were not for your good. They did not lead you well. They fed themselves. They didn't feed you. They cared for themselves. They didn't care for you. By the way, important distinctions to remember as you're seeking a new pastor. Is this someone who's really going to care for us? Or is he just getting a job to make some money to care for himself? And in this chapter of Ezekiel, he goes on to describe God taking on this role of being a shepherd himself. In Ezekiel 34, he goes, I will go out and search for my lost flock, my scattered flock. I will rescue them. I will gather them from among the peoples. I will tend to them. I will feed them good food. I will tend to my flock. I will seek the lost. I'll bring back the strays. I'll bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. And then a few verses later, Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24 gets more specific. I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, David's been dead about 300 years when Ezekiel writes this. So who is he talking about? Well, if you know your prophetic literature of the Old Testament, you know this is an obvious pointing of the one who would come in the line of David to fulfill this prophecy of caring for God's sheep. And so Jesus comes, and you find him saying in places like John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus hasn't come to be served. He has come to serve and give his life as a ransom for many as the great shepherd. He is our great shepherd. Church, no one, no one cares for you as much as Jesus Christ. No one. Not the greatest pastor that you've ever experienced your entire time being a member of a church. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your coworkers, your neighbor. No one cares for you more than Jesus Christ. No one is more drawn to you no one has paid a greater price for your life and your soul and your love and devotion. And He is with you always. He never leaves you. He is always coming after you to remind you of this, to bring you back to Him. He's with you to care for you, to feed you, to protect you, to lead you. He is our great shepherd. He is for your good, your well-being, your care, your life. He gave up His life so you could live and have His life. Which He refers to in the very next phrase. Fourthly, He shed His blood and made an eternal covenant through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Hebrews, if you've read it before or studied it, you would know Hebrews is a very bloody book. The Bible is a bloody book. In the garden, God gave our parents the entirety of creation to enjoy with just one rule. Don't eat from this one tree. If you do, you'll die. But deceived by the serpent, Satan, Eve gave, Eve gave in to the temptation while Adam stood by her doing nothing, saying nothing. And then he ate as well, and immediately their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And the Lord, who had walked with them in the cool of the day, with whom they, they had enjoyed intimate fellowship, sought them out in their hiding, asking them this question, Where are you? 
which was not a question for God to not know where they are, but it was a question for them to ask themselves, where are we indeed? Why are we hiding? We've never hid before. Why are we ashamed? We've never been ashamed before. You see, there was a separation where there had never been separation. And we learn from Genesis 3 that this is the essence of death, separation. While Adam and Eve would not die immediately from their sin, they would be cast out of the garden and away from the tree of life. Theoretically, if they had continued to obey God and not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would have enjoyed fellowship with God forever, eating and feasting on the tree of life. By the way, the tree of life disappears in Genesis 3. You never hear about it again until Revelation 22 when the tree of life returns. We'll be feasting on this tree for all of eternity. They, sinful, they, they rebelled and they sinned and they were separated from this fellowship and that source of life. And once out of the garden, sin would infect all of creation and eventually kill and destroy life constantly. But before they left the garden in the act of mercy, the Lord wanted to cover their nakedness and their shame. So he killed an innocent animal and used the skins of the animal to cover over their nakedness and shame. And this begins to help us see this full character nature of God that we would not have known if he had not allowed sin into creation, if he had not allowed Adam and Eve to rebel. Sometimes we play these little theoretical games. Well, why didn't God just create a world where there wasn't sin and rebellion and Satan and death and sorrow? What if he just created the eternal state to begin with? Well, go read the songs of Revelation. What are we singing about? We're singing about the Lamb of God who came and was slain before the foundation of the world, who gave himself up for our sins. If God had created a world where sin and rebellion and death and suffering wasn't a possibility, we would have never known Jesus as our great Redeemer and our Healer and our Restorer. There had been a whole aspect of God's character and nature we would not have access to without the possibility of rebellion and sin. This is why God allowed sin, so He could actually get more glory because He reveals more of Himself. God is holy, just, and righteous. When God makes a command, His commands are not arbitrary. He's not just throwing darts against a dartboard to just make up, well, I think we'll go with telling the truth instead of lying. That sounds good. And I think I'll go with uh, not killing instead of killing as, as my command. It's not arbitrary. His commands flow from His character. God is a God of truth, so we don't lie, because God is truth. When he makes his command, it comes from his character and nature. To obey his command, in fact, is aligning our lives with who he is and how he has created us to live and thrive best. But our parents rebelled. And because we inherit this rebellious, sinful nature, so do all of us. It's part of what we have in common with all of humanity. So what is a holy, just, and righteous God to do? His image bearers He created to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth so that all creation would know and worship God. They said no. We want to do it our way. Well, a good judge, when the law is broken, hands out the consequences that come from breaking the law. Punishment. If a judge doesn't condemn the guilty, he, in fact, is not a good judge. So how can a judge rightly condemn the guilty, but also show mercy and grace and love to the guilty? Well, in our legal system, the only way you can do that is like a reduced sentence, or maybe probation, or maybe we'll put you in a nicer prison. But in God's courtroom, this is where the miracle of redemption happens. 
The innocent judge steps down from the judge's chair and comes and stands next to the guilty party and then becomes their advocate and their substitute. Jesus says, yeah, they're guilty. I'll pay the price. I'll take the punishment that they deserve so they can go free because I love them. And not only that, over their guilty record of crimes, write my perfect record of righteousness so that anytime anyone wants to look up their record, they see their sins, yes, but it's covered by my righteousness. They are wrapped in the robes of my righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So the guilty who should die, the punishment for sin, are allowed to live so they can go free because the innocent one was willing to die in their place. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how God is able to be both just and merciful, holy and gracious, righteous and loving, because He Himself purchased our salvation with His own blood. He died the death that we should have died, and we get his life and forgiveness and spotless record credited to our account in God's eyes. And this is an, ex an eternal exchange, an eternal covenant. It never, ever expires. It never goes away. Living in the world today, 2022, it feels like everything is shaking. Nothing is permanent anymore. This covenant is permanent. The whole world can fall apart. Every nation could crumble. The financial markets could go crashing into the sea. More pandemics, whatever, chaos can flood the world. This is always true. And when we stand before God at the end of our life, it will still be true. This is where our hope and our joy and our peace and our love and our future is rooted in the eternal covenant of our Lord Jesus Christ that He's given us more than the temporary craziness of our world. This has to have your heart. If the world has your heart, your world is, your, your, if the world has your heart, your heart is shaking because the world is shaking. But if Jesus has your heart, your heart is steady, secure, strong, because nothing changes him. Nothing changes what he's done. Nothing changes what he's promised. Fifthly, He's alive in us to give us all we need to do uh, his, his will and be pleasing in His sight. Verse 21. So this God of peace who's done all this work through Jesus, verse 21, may He equip you with everything good to do His will, working in us what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. So now what? Now that we've been purchased by His blood and we've become His people, this is what He desires for us. Now that we are His, everything He calls and asks us to do, He equips us and works in us to make it happen. This is why John can say in 1 John 5, His commands are not burdensome. Because all we need to obey is given to us to help us obey. In whatever place in your life you struggle to live as God has created you to live. Wherever your greatest areas uh, your greatest struggles, wherever there's the biggest gap in your life between what you know is true, who you desire to be, and what your reality is. We all have that gap. Every single person in this room has that gap. I want to be this person. I know this is true. I want to experience these promises of God, but I'm down here somewhere. 
wherever that gap is, know that Jesus lives in you to help close the gap. Jesus is in you to help you do what you don't think you can do. Take the hardest commands in Scripture, the ones that really you don't think you can consistently obey, and Jesus is at work in you to make that happen so you can experience His power, His presence, His closeness, His love. And guess what? He isn't going to stop until He's done. He who began a good and work in you will complete it. Um, until the completion, uh, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So you have these promises of God that He's given us in Christ Jesus, and you're like, I don't experience these things. I don't, I don't experience this joy, this peace, this rest, this hope. I'm struggling to see it. Your first action, like it's a good thing to recognize that you don't experience it. Because if you recognize that you aren't experiencing, you aren't living that out, then you will run to Him for help. The, the, the scary place to be is to be in this place where you're saying, I got this. I have no struggles. Look at me. Who doesn't want to live life like I do? Who doesn't want to experience what I experience? That's the scary place to be. The place where Jesus wants you to be, I need him every day to experience everything he's come to give me to experience. And run to him. Call out to him. Cling to him. Do it in community with other people that He's put in your life. This is why we need the church. We need each other more than ever before because we struggle to preach the gospel to ourselves and we need other people to come alongside of us and preach the gospel to us. Lastly, the very last phrase, what is this ultimately all about? Where is this ultimately headed? Verse 21, to whom, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To Jesus Christ be glory forever and ever. The spotlight is for one alone. The songs we sing in the eternal state, go to the book of Revelation, they're all about one person. He is the source. He is the rock. He is the focus. He is it. It's all about Jesus. There's no one like Him. There's no one even close to Jesus. And this Jesus, who has done all that the book of Hebrews has cataloged and detailed and portrayed, this Jesus who has done all of this and by His grace He's applied it to a bunch of rebels like me and you. A bunch of bumbling, stumbling saints who seem to fall backwards into His will over and over. This Jesus lives in us to empower everything we do, to affirm who we are, to remind us constantly of His great love for us. Who else is like Jesus? Who else has done what Jesus has done? Who else is deserving of all the glory and the worship of all creation? In John 13, verse 1, John records, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He then goes on to take the job of the lowliest servant, washing the disgusting feet of his 12 disciples, including the one who was about to betray him, including the one who was about to deny him. And he writes... And, and, and John writes, he continued all the way to the end through death on the cross. Dane Ortland writes about this verse in Gentle and Lowly. He says this, When the Apostle John tells us that Jesus loved his own to the end, John is pulling back the veil to allow us to peer into the depths of who Jesus is. His heart for his own is not like an arrow shot quickly but soon falling to the ground or a runner, quick out of the gate, soon slowing and faltering. 
His heart for his own is like an avalanche, gathering momentum with time. It's like a wildfire growing in intensity as it spreads. But notice, this love is not indiscriminate. It's loving his own. For those who are not his own, there won't be love, but there will be wrath one day which drives our mission to see more and more lost children found and to know Jesus as Savior and friend. And so today, if you can't say or if you struggle to know that you are his own, please let's talk before you leave. See some of the leaders of this church, some of the elders, some of the women. Talk today, call out to him for salvation and redemption. Today could indeed be the day of your salvation if you would repent of your sins and trust in Jesus to be your Savior and King. And if today you do know and believe Jesus is this bridge of peace between you and God, the one who's been raised, your great shepherd who shed his blood for you and brought you into this eternal covenant and lives in you to obey his commands, then today worship him, enjoy him, and share him with those who don't know Jesus in this way. Share Him with those who maybe know Jesus but are running from Him. Share Him with those who are only religious and they're miserable because they don't know how much Jesus loves them.